Hello humans, hello humans. Around noon, hitting outbound now. Uh, nice day. We haven't had uh, serious rain for a couple of days, so that's all right. Anyway, um, wanted to talk about Vaimani and uh, other forms of UFOs. We're getting information now about the requirements for the Vaimani pilots and stuff out of Russian. Uh, Russian is interesting. Phonetically, it's basically Sanskrit. If you were to take um, Hindi, and to a certain extent, say maybe 40% of all the words in Hindi, phonetically, if you just said them to a Russian, and sort of like had a Russian accent with it, they would understand. So, um, Russian and Sanskrit share a uh, common derivation uh, chain or thread. Anyway, so we're getting information about what the um, uh, requirements were for flying these machines. Um, well, in the uh, in the past, right? Uh, some of this stuff is uh, three and four and five thousand years old. Uh, once it gets much beyond, say, twenty-two hundred uh, years or so, unless you've got a, a really good provenance. A chain of evidence as to how you how it came to be, then a lot of this stuff is really open to interpretation as to you know who wrote it, and a lot of it is um, just laid at the feet of certain people by subsequent generations, and it not really warranted. So a lot of these books are said that you know it's written by uh, this and thus and so a guru or sage or something, right? And it's not. Uh, it's just it's author unknown and um, was about that time. And you'll find that a lot of the books in uh, Sanskrit, okay, so a lot of these ancient volumes, they were written by people that were not in, living in the same kind of environment as us in the sense that there was not a sense of, um, there was no incentive, there no economic incentive for writing these books they were not being mass-produced and sold, and there was no, um, <coughs> excuse me, ego incentive for um, having attribution. So a lot of these books are just written uh, by anonymous authors. Some books will have uh, sections within them describing how they came to be. Okay, there, there's a whole lot of um, our literature. Uh, really, I should say, documentation, okay, uh, technical and um, uh, what we now classify as spiritual, which may not be spiritual and might actually just be a misinterpretation of some technical literature, but there's a lot of it that's written without attribution. So we have, for instance, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, but but Patanjali is, um, uh, Patan is an, is an area of India, the Pathan, and uh, Jali is a word meaning sage or enlightened person, J-A-L-I. So Patanjali is just, you know, enlightened person from the Pathan region of India, northern India, wrote this book. It was not necessarily a guy's name. It's more of a title uh, or a description. We have a lot of those things where the books are just ascribed to 
uh, particular individuals, and they, um, they, you know, we don't really know who wrote them. Some really cool books, though, they say, you know, um, it says basically, I am a scribe thus and so, and this uh, great person with all this money uh, instructed me or paid me to put this volume together. Uh, and it was done so for this following purpose, right? And so those books are just great because built within the text is the validation of the, the subject matter and who wrote it, circumstances, and in some cases we get um, a general estimate of when as well uh, because we end up with um, uh, reference points relative to uh, astronomy. So, you know, uh, some of these books that we've got in, um, in Russian that are having uh, Vaimana instructions are saying, hey, we wrote this thing in this year in, in uh, this, under these uh, astronomical conditions, and there were four of us that put it together, and we were instructed to put it together by so-and-so, the, you know, great uh, poobah of this particular region of India, Russia, whatever, right? We've got a lot of these that are that way in Chinese. Uh, we've got a lot of them that are actually, uh, I think, probably Tartarian. But in any event, though, so um, those forms of books uh, are turning up, and we're getting more and more, now that we've got AI working and, and more and more resources available that way, a lot of these... Um, uh, repositories where they've got, you know, 10,000 scrolls, that kind of thing, are starting to um, uh, open up and be translated. And, uh, you know, it's a meticulous process. You've got to handle these books carefully and then put them back. But once they're digitized, boy, there, there we go. We're off and running. And uh, there's a lot more showing up now in Russian uh, than we are uh, getting in uh, Sanskrit or Pali or Avestan or Chinese for that matter. Uh, the Russians are putting some level of effort into translating a lot of these old books uh, for their own purposes. Okay, so um, I think, and this is a speculation, I am speculating that I'm seeing things in the movements in Russia that seem to suggest that the Russians are very, very, very much focused on um, these ancient flying machines and the space aliens that brought them to us and that they're focused on it for uh, their own purposes which I think may be technological well they are technological to some degree these guys want the technology the Russians want to know these things and the Russians are really into um, supersonic right and they've got some supersonic stuff that that I think derives from some of this information in ancient text. Uh, we saw, okay, so maybe, maybe six months back, I'm trying to think here. So probably more than that, probably eight months. So at the beginning of, of last summer, uh, just as I was getting into this big flush of data that uh, suggested that, you know, all kinds of shit was going to uh, unfold, which had happened, you know, we've got the, um, the Lahaina, we've got the um, uh, the Gaza genocide by the Jews, all of this kind of thing, all uh, rolling out uh, as expected off of those 
data sets from past summer, but back then, I had before I got into the data, uh, which got me distracted from it all, I'd, we'd come across, myself and these um, old fart guys, uh, we'd come across some stuff in Russian about, it was ancient literature too, I mean, it, um, they, were, they were citing things, um, astronomical things that uh, happened in um, 550 uh, current era, right? So, uh, so 1,500 years back. And um, they, uh, the description of it was, if you really looked at it, so it's all text. We didn't have any drawings or anything, right? So you have to take the text. This was a meticulous, meticulous text. I mean, these guys were intending that you would understand this from their description, and they kept putting in words until they were quite sure that they had described every aspect of it. But what, uh, what this thing was describing, one aspect of it was a skin surface uh, for flying projectiles that eliminated uh, or that, that seriously reduced uh, friction from movement through the air and also seriously reduced um, cavitation and uh, seriously reduced um, uh, drag from the air like um, uh, friction pulling it back as opposed to the the uh, the other aspects of the friction through the air, which would cause it to become unstable uh, relative to, um, uh, you know, it's an angle of flight and so on. Anyway, uh, this was a really interesting book, and and it basically was saying, if you read it, if we were reading it correctly, and we think we were, we, you know, we had human and AI translation, and it all seemed to jive, and it was just very, very tedious to read it because they were quite intent on describing this um, this skin surface for flying machines, and they even had the mathematics that provided certain um, uh, curve functions for energy uh, use. And it's like, wow, look at what we're looking at here. And so I'm I'm pretty certain that probably the Russians are are uh, working that aspect of things, the ancient um, descriptions of technology uh, for the supersonic and the other areas that they're very much interested in. This one basically said uh, it described a, a rough surface, deliberately roughened surface that had um, relative to the uh, direction of flight, this surface had backward focusing uh, ripples all along it. But what was the cool part of these ripples was that they were hollowed out at the edge like you might hollow out uh, a cresting wave. You know how a wave in the ocean comes up and it crests and there's a, a sort of a, for a moment, there's that little hook in that underage, right? There's a little bit of air that's trapped under the, the edge of the wave as it crests and then, then breaks and crashes. And this was kind of trying to describe cresting waves that had been um, uh, put on a metal surface in order that this thing might go faster than sound. And they were saying seven times faster than sound. Um, and uh, what made it, they were saying that if you just put the ripples on, just put these these ridges, very much like little tiny ridges you might see on like on a potato chip or something, right? Um, 
And if you put these onto the metal and just had the metal lumpy that way with all these ridges and stuff, that you might get uh, one one or two times faster than the speed of sound. But that if you did it with these cresting wave things with these like little hooks in there uh, for uh, creating this null spot, uh, this void area underneath the edge of the of the cresting wave, so to speak, underneath the edge of the hook on the um, the ripple on the metal, that uh, that particular void in this particular shape that it describes, because it wasn't, I mean, it was really fucking meticulous. It was an ovoid in section, uh, but that this would get you seven times faster than the speed of sound. So, and you know, and this is like fucking ancient. Uh, this was taken from um, some other language, and we don't know if it was Chinese or, or Sanskrit, and then it was put into Russian, and it was put into Russian that, uh, according to my Russian expert, was probably close to 1,000 to 2,000 years back. I mean, way ancient Russian in, in both uh, grammar, syntax, uh, uh, form, and context. So, um, so way ancient, right? Anyway, uh, so we came across that. One of our guys is um, uh, looking at it. He's going to do some experimentation. And uh, if he's successful, he's going to, you know, run it up for a new patent and uh, see if he can't um, uh, put it out there, right, as a, as a method for making these things happen. Anyway, though, so then we got distracted with all the data, and I'd, I'd left that aspect of things and was just getting back into it with this new article I did on the 32 secrets for being a Vimana pilot. Uh, and actually, it's a combat pilot for these little little airplanes that go with the Vimana. Um, <laughs> so it gets real complicated, right? The Vimana are these, bike, like, basically big pyramid-shaped uh, things that could even be made out of stone that would fly. Multiple stories. There were a bunch of different methods for by by which they were levitated, but essentially it was a um, mercury spinning in a closed container, uh, causing levitation effects in um, magnets that were uh, electromagnets that were. Um, situated around the spinning mercury in its vessel. So, but anyway, so big giant things, and then these little tiny uh, combat airplane, really, um, could land on the Vaimana up in the air and take off out of the Vaimana up in the air. We're talking Vaimana were multiple stories, you know. Maybe they were three or four stories tall. They had landing bays. Some of them were quite large. There's one description of one uh, that had a complement of 1,200, 1,200 humans uh, that it could carry. That was its cargo capacity. It was um, basically like a um, C-130. It was a big combat ship, and it would take these guys to wars. Uh, it could take 1,200 people. Didn't? That's not the crew. That's just the carrying capacity. Uh, so that's a lot of fucking people. You know, you're talking a big-ass uh, pyramid there flying through the sky. Uh, anyway, so uh, very interesting stuff coming out of the old text. I, I will, you know, I certainly will not live long enough to see all of the texts that are 
hidden in Nepal and Tibet and northern India and, uh, you know, uh, western China and uh, southern Russia and stuff, uh, translated uh, because in Egypt. Because just, just in known um, repositories, uh, there's an estimated 55,000 volumes uh, to be translated. And if we were to just look at uh, existent literature, um, there's, they're saying that basically, so I know some guys that are in the translation from uh, Sanskrit to other languages business, right? So they translate things into English and other languages. Now they're starting to work with AI, so they're much more uh, productive. But again, you, gotta, you can't trust that AI. I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, but anyway, so, uh, but these guys um, are saying that basically only about 4% of all the books that are existent in Sanskrit have ever been translated. In modern, uh, our modern social order, they're saying that, you know, uh, likely that less than that same 4% have ever even been read. That there's hundreds of thousands of these books, uh, historical, etc., um, that are lying around waiting to be translated. Many of them are, are uh, had been translated into Sanskrit from some other language. They make note of this in the book itself, but of those that have been translated uh, in the ancient times from, from some other language into Sanskrit, many of them have been translated and, and rewritten in the form of hymns. You know, hymns to these Elohim gods, right? Just like the Jews with all of their uh, hymns singing about, uh, oh, you know, this guy did a giant um, genocide on these people and, and so on and so on, right? And a lot of those hymns, a lot of the Jewish uh, psalms and, and uh, songs, uh, ritual songs, are all about death, destruction, killing, warfare, etc. Because Yahweh was a mean motherfucker um, war god. Anyway, um, so I won't live long enough to see all of these things uh, translated out, but as they are, this will be quite exciting because there's all kinds of technology that's written about in there that it can be recaptured and, uh, you know, reimagined, reinvented, and uh, repurposed and remanifest. Um, now, getting into the AI for a second. So, um, I get documents from people, digital and and uh, paper and stuff, our old fart group, we mail shit back and forth. But anyway, so I get this document, a digital form, uh, that is, uh, we know that it's Turkish and we know it's Armenian, okay? It looks to be um, really old, old Turkish and we think it's old Armenian, but uh, we just don't know. So we're going to use AI, we're going to suss it out, we're going to do some of our um, metadata analysis on it. And so I, I get this document, I'm going to do some of the chores and work here. And uh, so I, I go and I ask uh, chat GPT, and it's a straightforward question because I just did not know. I said, um, if I were to upload a document that had language on it, uh, could it extract the, the language out of a JPEG? And uh, further, could it then translate this stuff for me? And tell me the languages involved and then translate this stuff for me. And then I told it that I suspected 
that one of the languages was Turkish, and I suspected one of the languages was Armenian. And and so it said, yeah, no problem. Chat says, sure, upload a file, we'll, and off we'll go. And so this is this is how it is with chat. You know, it's always positive. It's always ready to go for you on this shit. And it says, okay, you know, give me that. We're good. So I give it the file, and then it, it grinds away for, for a few seconds, probably 30 seconds or, or so. So it was a tough answer to come up with. Anyway, and so it grinds away for 30 seconds, and it comes back, and it tells me, basically, it's like, oops, you know, I don't have a facility to do OCR and a facility to do uh, translation off of this document or even recognize the language in this particular um, arrangement with my software. So basically, what it's saying initially was, sure, no problem, I can do all that, uh, which it can, but it doesn't have any of the... Um, supporting software tools arranged the way that it needed to, and so it, it was. It was fundamentally uh, what I ended up having to do was to go off and do the OCR and extract the information in a textual form, and then divide the information up into both or into the two separate languages because it's not capable of dealing with both Turkish and Armenian simultaneously. Where it would read like the way this document was written, uh, we, we weren't sure what the fuck we were looking at. I thought that uh, it was a particular uh, document here, or format, and I'll get into that in a second, but it, but uh, anyway, it was like two, three, two or two lines of one language, two or three lines of another language, then back to the first language for a couple of lines, and then back to the second language for a couple of lines uh, for many pages. I had like nine pages of documents this way, and it was fairly small type. So, you know, quite a few words, etc. And um, and I just wanted to be able to hand it off to the AI and have it do the OCR and then have it do the translation, identify the languages, and then provide me with some meta metadata stuff and then do translation. And it wasn't able to do any of that. I ended up having to do the OCR stuff on my own and then having to separate out the each of the different languages and then present it to it. And sure enough, it agreed that once I was able to do that, it, it, it was just a straightforward translation issue. And it said, yeah, this is way old Turkish, and this is way old something-something, um, which we later identified as being a precursor to Armenian. Uh, then it, it started getting a little flaky from there. But in any event, though, this was, it turned out that this was a um, uh, from an old Bible. Okay, so it was an old uh, Bible that was being translated out of Turkish and into uh, Armenian. All right, so that, that it was sort of like a what we would think of as an interlinear. It wasn't word by word; it was phrase by phrase, or, or um, you know, section by section, chapter by chapter, however you want to think about it. Uh, but it, it was in that same way; it would show it in one language, then show it in another, because it was translating. Uh, into uh, this old form of Armenian uh, from an old form of Turkish uh, uh, in total as a, as a whole book. Um, it was interesting. So, uh, you know, it was a scrap, a fragment. Uh, one of the guys here who's a Bible scholar has identified um, that uh, it, 
it's sort of a bridge piece, okay? And so it contains some uh, small number of references to the Old Testament, uh, but it's primarily um, was a translation of uh, the book of Luke, right? Uh, Mark, Luke, and Matthew are the synoptic gospels. Mark is thought to be the oldest. Uh, Luke and Matthew are thought to be contemporaries. They have stuff in there that Mark does not, but they never disagree with Mark, so that's their base. But they must, but these two are thought to operate off of what's known as the Q document, um, which was this uh, common bridge between Luke and Mark, and then it was just differently translated for each of those. Anyway, though, so, but the, the point of this was that AI uh, is really fucking stupid, right? It it has certain capabilities and it thinks it has those capabilities and you ask it to do it and then it can't do it and it tells you why at that point. Mainly, it can't do a lot of shit. Uh, so AI is not anything to be afraid of. AI is really cool stuff. Uh, it, if you uh, know how to work it, it's, it's really cool stuff. You can become very, very, very productive. I was able to get the, um, uh, the Turkish, uh, which is what we were really after, was the oldest of the, of the languages. And, and we weren't interested so much in the actual material in these uh, pages here. Um, in the first six pages or so, there's, there was a section that was not like the others. And it, it was, as we thought, the bona fides for the document itself. And it, that was the cool part we were after, really, because it pointed to a particular family uh, in Turkey and uh, what had happened to this family and why these books were being produced. Now, we're doing something unusual in that we're contacting this family directly because they still exist in Turkey and we're going to offer them these documents because it is basically it was their family Bible, right? Now, um, it's tricky because this family is now Muslim, but um, uh, they were at that time uh, uh, very early Christians. And so we'll see what if they want the books or not, uh, If and then we're going to ask permission to um, talk about some of the stuff uh, with attribution. If we start getting into any attribution, then we basically expose this family, and we don't want to cause them any problems, right? We don't know their circumstances or so on. So we're just being responsible humans and saying, uh, basically, you know, we've got these books, we can publish them as we choose, but we're going to be nice and ask if, if there's reasons that you guys would, would uh, you know, think yourselves at risk if we do publish them. And, uh, and it's not that we're going to publish them. We're going to just write some articles about what we've discovered here. So anyway, though, so basically what I'm saying is that, you know, AI thinks it has all kinds of capabilities and will we'll brag about it, what it can do, and it can't do any of this shit. Uh, no real reason to be afraid of the crap. Uh, unlike, um, you know, Carrie Cassidy and Gene Decode, who are like apparently scared shitless uh of AI coming and eating their lunch or attaching to their spine or some damn thing. Um, but I, I think AI is pretty cool. I know a lot of programmers and coders that are using it now and are they're all very much more 
productive. They're all making a lot of um, uh, more code because you can use uh, AI to do all your boilerplate and then just go back and tune it, extract the design patterns, tighten it all up, and there you go. And uh, you can use AI to suss out kinds of things, but you got to be careful because initially it'll say, yes, you do it this and thus, thus way, but it never really provides you with details. It um, comes in and um, gives you some uh, vague description. So like if you were to say, you know, um, how do you turn the navigation uh, GPS on in such and so car? It'll say, oh, sure, no problem. And it, it finds this information, and then it presents you with something that is like sort of uh, close to what you wanted, but it's not really the exact step-by-step-by-step. -by -step -by -step. It is um, an aggregation of the step-by-step-by-step -step -step that it found in the indices, not the actual documents themselves. And so it gets tricky when you start thinking about AI and how it works and what you're going to end up with and so on. Um, I'm going to have to stop and get some fuel here. Got to buy some diesel. But, so our work with the uh, mind to machine interface, all the space aliens, all of that kind of stuff, it's proceeding along and we are actually gaining real understanding now of a lot more of the beautiful fence there uh, of the books that, that um, uh, are good sources etc etc we're building up a, a corpus a, a library of uh, source material that provides us an interesting view of all of this stuff there there are hints in some of these documents that you know so and so um, ruler in such and such a age that, you know, is identified as this particular uh, astro uh, astronomy, these particular alignments, uh, you know, in the year when um, this planet is in that nakshatra and this, this in the sun's over here and that kind of thing. So you can identify the years. We do find that there are descriptions of actual manufacturing uh, uh, directions for these Vaimana. Uh, not just the use of them, not just the capabilities, not just the um, what you have to do to pilot them and what you have to put yourself through, uh, but actually how to build the fuckers. Uh, there are a lot, and I'm saying a lot, I don't know, we've probably come across 40, maybe, maybe more than that, documents that go to, that describe the, um, the care of the humans that are involved in uh, flying your Vaimana, what they have to go through. And uh, the ones that operate the mind-to-machine interface and their health and how long they live and all of that is, is fairly detailed in some of these guys. And there's pointers to other documents that are much more detailed. So one of the books that we've got um, actually says this is an extract uh, from a medical text about these guys, about what, what is to be encountered in your Vaimana pilot and how to uh, deal with the problems they're going to have. Uh, apparently it's not, uh, we were thinking maybe it was like uh, radiation, but apparently, you know, and it makes sense if you're in a big stone 
spaceship, you're not going to get a lot of radiation coming through the stone. And some of these things are described as having um, uh, basically a, a wall that was two or three meters thick. So, you know, nine foot thick stone um, outer wall in your Vimana. Uh, these, they didn't have to be airtight. Uh, when you fire up the uh, engines on these things, they create a, uh, a self-sealing uh, closed environment uh, within these kind of bubbles, right? Uh, and so they're, they're, the oxygen and stuff is trapped uh, by the electromagnetic uh, fields around these guys. So you don't have to worry so much about uh, those kind of, of um, problems uh, relative to your spaceship. It'll be self-sealing uh, just due to being out there with this energy around it. We also see that these guys are described as going from world to world. And uh, there's one really nice set of passages. Maybe it's 50, 50 of these little uh, sayings, little, little phrases uh, that describe using these vessels to fly to other suns. And, uh, and also how to navigate. And then we found another set of passages in which there is a reference to a specific book uh, about navigation of these and how to navigate uh, based on the, uh, what they call the dark spectrum, okay? So that's a whole nother thing there. So, uh, okay, so there's basically two color schemes Mostly you guys are all familiar because that's all they ever teach you is the primary color scheme, you know, red, blue, green, yellow, uh, you know, white, black, all of that, right? There's this other color scheme uh, that in our modern age is um, Goethe's, uh, Goethe's color wheel. Uh, he was a philosopher and so on, and he had a different understanding of color. And he said, look, you people with your color wheels are really stupid. You're leaving out... Um, uh, you know, the true browns, the the magentas, the purples, the lavenders, and so on. And here's this whole other color wheel aspect. Well, it turns out that in these uh, navigational texts, they reference using the dark color spectrum to navigate. And, and if you really read this, it took us a long time to understand what they were talking about, because necessarily a lot of the language had been uh, translated and working it back to its original state in order to get a real original meaning was a serious bit of work on this one document. I mean, it must have taken us, there were four of us doing it. Uh, we used AI, but even so, it's just tedious as fuck because you can't trust the AI to get it accurate at the detail level. So you got to go over every word on your own. It's just that it does the translation and then you you're able to get in there and uh, look at the individual words and and uh, tweak it, so to speak, right? But anyway, so it, it took us like months on that, maybe a whole year uh, to go through the, the one document. But, but fundamentally, it would appear that you can use with the Vimana, they had the ability to identify suns uh, by an aggregate number that reflected or, or that was a representational of, of the frequencies that these suns emitted in the dark color spectrum, which was observable 
by these devices within the Vimana. So you could, and they, they describe these as vapors. That's the uh, closest in this particular book. That was the closest we could come to it. But they were saying uh, you would have, you would look into these vapors and it's not like scrying or, you know, looking into water, that kind of thing. But they would say you would look into these vapors and you would see in these vapors the um, plethora of suns uh, in your local region and you could dial into another region. And, and it actually had a rotating dial described that would flip from like screen to screen to screen kind of a thing, right? And on each screen would be a number of these uh, registration uh, signatures of the dark um, spectrum from these suns. So they were not talking about those aspects of visible light, of sunlight that we uh, take now, but they were talking about um, the magenta, the lavender, the purple, uh, brown, and, and other dark spectrum uh, colors that that went into forming uh, this registration number for the suns. And you'd get this, they called it a word, it was actually uh, numerics, but um, you'd get this word that described your particular sun, and then you would go to another device within the Vimana, and you would instruct the Vimana that that was the goal. Okay, so they didn't say destination, they would say goal. And, um, or they, the point to become accomplished. And it's also could be the point at which we will access or, and I think that that's really more of a, a descriptor of accessing the local space, right? So you're going to pop out of, of um, your hyperspace into local space and you would access that local space and there you go. And uh, you would do so based on this dark color spectrum that would be coming off of these suns that could be picked up by this device. Now, doesn't mean you could see it. Um, there were some discussions about actually the being able to see visibly uh, lavender and purple suns. And they, I don't think they're actually purple to our eyes. It's just that they emit more of the dark spectrum than they do of the light spectrum. And there's a bunch of stuff about the dark spectrum and um, energy uh, frequencies and uh, how to um, call forth the energies and how to deal with these energies that, that derive from this dark spectrum or are, are able to be accessed by this uh, through this dark spectrum. So uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, we had not, um, obviously had not anticipated running across it. And uh, it took us, like I say, about a year to just to figure out what the hell we were we were looking at here, and what they were, the thing was actually talking about. Um, but uh, once we did so, it started making sense, and then we found uh, other references to it in other ancient documents that also supported the idea that this dark spectrum was uh, used for multiple different purposes by these machines. Uh, one of which is the navigation. And then we also have um, have these spectrums be uh, useful for uh, like warfare kind of stuff, right? They apparently, I, I get into that at some other point, but they apparently are able to be viewed and they could show you like uh, points of fragility 
uh, within the local environment that could be uh, accessed um, and changed energetically by the uh, something in your Vaimana. So you could actually cause your enemies problems. And a lot of these things are all about your fucking enemies. Anyway, I got to stop and get fuel here. I'll pick up on this later. Um, but anyway, so we're making progress. It's slow. I'm really bummed out by all this stuff that's going on around, uh, around here with us. Um, and we're going to, I've got to do local stuff. So it'll, it'll be a while, but maybe in a year, maybe a year and a half, we'll release, uh, we're, we're thinking about releasing a compendium, you know, um, uh, organized approach to everything we've learned here. Anyway, I'll, I'll do some more of this later.